Well, good morning, everybody. I want to talk about uh, I want to talk about going through the motions. This is tied to the theme of for the display of his splendor, and by the time we get to the end, I think you'll understand why. But um, if you've got your Bibles, open them up to Revelation chapter two. <sighs> end times, angels. Smoke, silver trumpets. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. You have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you that you have abandoned your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Ephesus is a town in the city, in the eastern Mediterranean. It sits a little bit inland from the Aegean Sea, and um, it's still there today after two millennia. It was a you know, mid-sized town of some importance during the Roman period when this letter was written, when Paul was alive, when the book of Acts was being written. And there are other cities in the area which, for one reason or another, may have been more important, but Ephesus was an important town that in its day sat right by the coast. Today the coastline has changed a bit, call it global warming, call it sedimentation, but whatever, it's no longer right on the beach, but it's still there and it's, it's a well-preserved city because unlike most of the other cities in the eastern uh, Mediterranean, it didn't sit on a major trade route and consequently it avoided invading armies, literally for all of time. And so it's an intact city. I've done a lot of um, messages on the church in Ephesus, uh, what happened in Ephesus, etc., over this last year and a half or so. I think we have one of them at the back called Catalyzing Regional Outpourings. It's a study in Acts 19 of what happened when Paul got to Ephesus. I'm not going to try to recapitulate that today. The sermon would be too long if I did. But I will say this, Ephesus was a high point that became a low point. It was the most powerful move of God in all of recorded New Testament history, period, full stop. Yes, there were other moves of God. Things happened in Philippi. Things went on in Thessalonica. Thessalonica was almost as powerful as Ephesus, but nothing came close to touching what God did in Ephesus. Ephesus was the high point that became the low point, a church that was birthed in widespread, fervent evangelism in what the scriptures itself call extraordinary miracles 
had lost its way. And this church had lost its way, not in the sense of falling into error, into theological error, but in the sense of losing the heart of the matter. This church wasn't lukewarm like its sister church in Laodicea. Everybody who knows anything about the Bible knows that Laodicea was the lukewarm church, and Jesus said, I'll spit you out of my mouth unless you're either hot or cold. And people often confuse Ephesus' problem with Laodicea's. Ephesus did not have the same problem as Laodicea. Ephesus had lost its first love, and the Greek is stronger than that. They'd flung it aside. They'd cast it away. And the entire Christian community in the whole of the eastern Mediterranean knew about it. Now, that's not exactly where you want to be most of the time. It's kind of like, you know, having your skirt lifted up accidentally. Whoops! Right? That's what Ephesus is dealing with. Now, anyone who's been married can relate to the Ephesian church. What had started as an irresistible passion. And as Acts 19 tells us, again, I'm not trying to recapitulate that message, but context helps. As Acts 19 tells us, what had shaken an entire continent because of the ministry of one church, one congregation, one citywide church, I guess, in this case had declined. And it had taken about a generation to get there, maybe 30 to 40 years, into formalism, going through the motions, doing the right things, and yet without having the right heart. That was the Ephesians' problem. This is a risk in any love relationship. It raises the question, how do you sustain love for a lifetime? How do you do that? Charles Finney, the great American revivalist, wrestled with this problem. Some years after his revival meetings in Upper New York State, roughly 1840 into the early 1850s, he noted that it was nearly impossible to engage people in meaningful conversations about spiritual matters. He called the area the burned-over district. Today, we would use the term scorched earth, but burned-over district, scorched earth, nothing will grow there. It's hard to start a fire when all the fuel's been consumed. A couple of years ago, I was traveling here in Australia, and I was in the west of the country, and... I was in this church and I was up in the pulpit speaking. I was teaching on the kingdom of God and up the back was somebody that was traveling with me, a good friend of mine, and next to him was standing one of the elders in the church. And as I was talking about the pearl of great price, I said, you know, there might be people here that might feel called of the Lord to to leave, to relocate from where they now are here in this town and go somewhere else for the sake of the gospel, whether to plant a church or be involved in a ministry or who knows what. I mean, God has a lot of ways he can use people. I don't want to make it sound like it's always about church work. And when I made that comment, this elder standing next to uh, my friend said, well, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. I would never move anywhere for the sake of the gospel. And why would you want to uproot your life? I like it here. Now, that particular church has a reputation throughout the district in which it occurs, in which it exists, and everybody knows that church has a history of splits and divisiveness, and they can't get behind their pastor, and on and on and on like that. And 
And, you know, as, a, as the person made that comment, I couldn't hear it. They were up the back, and I'm in the pulpit. But my friend told me about that later because he was standing right there. And the, the elder said it not to anyone in particular. It was just sort of spontaneously uttered. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And it's not just the words, it's the sentiments, it's the attitudes, it's, it's all of that. And when my friend told me that this elder had said this midstream while I was in the middle of the sermon, I thought, well, and now I know why that church has the reputation it has. Some of the most difficult churches in which to ignite a fire are those where fires once burned brightly. Been there, done that. That's the order of the day. Nobody's really ready to you know, play ball again. That's what happens in marriages that go a little bit south too, right? I don't know if I trust her again. I don't know if I trust him. Now, he said that many times, but I don't know if I'm ready to recommit. That's the nature of the way human beings are. But what characterized the burned-over district in Finney's day? Now I'm talking 150 years ago, yes, but human beings haven't changed much in a century and a half. What was it that characterized the burned-over district? Cynicism. Cynicism that had found its roots in lost love. Now, cynicism is a strange beast. I've read the whole Bible. In fact, this Bible here is a one that I started using this year because the one that I used to use, I was cut off in traffic on a major highway back home, and my regular Bible was sitting on the seat, and at the moment I you know, hit the brakes to avoid the collision, which I successfully did do, the Bible launched. <laughs> and the way it was sitting, when it hit the, you know, the dashboard, um, the entire guts of the Bible ripped out of the cover because of the, you know, the force of the motion. So that Bible went off to be rebound and I started using this one. And so I've read through the whole Bible many times, depending on what part of it you're talking about. I might have read it 400 times or maybe as few as 20, but, you know, I've read through the Bible a lot. And, and this particular Bible I've read through about three times this year. So I've read the Bible, I know the Bible, I've studied the Bible, and here's what I've, what I've learned is that everywhere I look in the Bible, there's not a single place I see cynicism commended as a fruit of the Spirit. <laughs> and yet everywhere I go, I see people who have lost their first love, and in them I see cynicism. Now how does that work? Cynicism and love cannot coexist in the same soul. There's the diagnostic right there. Some people say, I used to go to church, but I don't go any longer. It's boring. I don't get anything out of it. Well, that person's mouth has told you what their issue is. Their cynicism has made them bored. If you will, using a little bit of preacher's liberty, these people are hypnocrits. They've been lulled into a state of stupor. They're... Uh, there's nothing fascinating about the Word of God to them any longer. There's nothing fascinating to them about God Himself. Now, we talked about the display of His splendor this weekend. I did a meeting with the worship teams of this church in Briz West, and then last night we talked at more length about the display of His splendor. But you can't be fascinated by God if you're in that state of stupor, that dullness of soul. And if you're married. You know what it is to have been passionately in love with your spouse and then suddenly to lose that fascination with your spouse, maybe to the point where you'd rather not even be in the same room, let alone in the same bedroom. Then there's this other kind of cynicism. 
It's the cynicism of judgment. I can't stand the hypocrites at church. Now, that's the word that we all know, right? They say one thing, but they do another. Well, if you're married, you know what it is to see the inconsistencies in your spouse, and they just get under your skin, and you're like... (laughs) No further commentary needed. And then there's those who say, you know, I can't stand that fanaticism at church. What's the pastor doing pogoing on the platform anyway? People are always exaggerating what God did or what God is going to do or what God said. I can't stand all that stuff. Those people at that church, they're all a bunch of hype ocrits. And so they come to the place of no longer trusting what others have to say, brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. And it's particularly tragic when these threads, these tentacles creep into the life of a leader or a leadership team. Maybe somebody like Rob Bell, a man who discovered universalism mysteriously a couple of years ago and took a 6,000-member congregation and flew it into the earth and then left the ministry. Nice work, Rob Bell. Some pastors resign in discouragement. Some home fellowship leaders no longer desire to serve the flock devotedly. Now, Undoubtedly, many of the people who are hearing this letter, which in my Bible, it's printed in nine and a half point type, so, you know, not for the people who are like blind with age, but, but big enough that it works okay in a pulpit. In my Bible, double column print, this letter is this long and that wide. That's not a long letter. It's a short letter. Undoubtedly, many of the people who were hearing this brief letter written from John to them, in that church in Ephesus on that Sunday morning, wherever it was exactly that they were gathered, undoubtedly the people who had heard this letter were aware of Paul's ministry. They were aware of Timothy's ministry who had come after Paul because Paul had sent Timothy to Ephesus to pastor that congregation. These were people who, man, they knew the man. They were there back in the day. They knew the apostle. And yet, Jesus himself felt the need to send a word of rebuke to them by the prophet John. Now, yes, I know John's also an apostle, but he has a prophetic, very strong prophetic gift that runs through him, and you see it in all of his writings from his gospel to his three letters to the book of Revelation. And here's the thing, those people who were listening to this letter as it hit impact zone, they'd been warned in advance. This wasn't the first time something like this had been kind of dangled in front of them. While he was still alive, Paul had sent for the elders of the Ephesian church while he was on the beach, not far from Ephesus, in a town called Miletus. And he bid them come to him for final instructions before he sailed away to Rome because he knew he would not see them again. And among the things he told them was this, and I'm quoting from the book of Acts chapter 20, Verse 28 through 31, he said this, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things, 
seeking to draw away disciples after themselves. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Now, perhaps some of those sitting in the congregation on that morning about circa 90 A.D. or so, when John wrote this letter, maybe as late as 95 A.D., Maybe some of those people were now involved in this error that Jesus puts his finger on and calls the error of the Nicolaitans. Perhaps they had become the wolves that Paul had prophesied about a generation before. After all, he had warned them. He did say from among your own ranks this will happen. Now most scholars are going to tell you that the Nicolaitans were some heretical group, but we've lost their teachings in the mists of time. We no longer know who the Nicolaitans were and what they taught, and maybe those scholars are right, but on the other hand, just maybe the Nicolaitans were exactly what their name suggests. Because Nicolaitan is, a, is an amalgamation of two words. Nico, which means to suppress or conquer, hold down or hold back the laos, the laity, the people of God. To restrict the people of God, to put blinders on them, to hold them back from being all that they were meant to be. And in so doing, the Nicolaitans began to lord it over those under their care, binding and constraining them. And in the end, they devoured them. But here's the thing, with the passage of time, even the words of revered founders are easily forgotten, conveniently dismissed, ultimately ignored. Because nobody remembers what that ragtag apostle from 30 or 40 years ago told us when he was last here. Oh, there's a few, still a few of us around, but you know those are just like old legends from the life of the beginning of the church. That's not really the world that we live in anymore. Yeah, well, yeah, we've heard about the great revival, sure. Yeah, we've heard about the great extraordinary moves of God. We've heard about signs and wonders. We've heard about all of it, but that's not the world we live in anymore. And so maybe those that were sitting in that congregation that morning those that were the Nicolaitan practitioners, they didn't fully realize that they were the ones maybe that Paul had been talking about when he had uttered those last words on the beach in Miletus. But their fruit told the story because a church that had been filled with power and fire had grown cold. The Ephesians hated the Nicolaitans, Jesus said that, but their influence persisted and it was time to root out that influence. Now, apparently this phenomenon was widespread enough that the Apostle Peter, one of the other big guns of the New Testament era, felt compelled to address it separately in a letter that he wrote into the exact same geography, a letter known as 1 Peter. He wrote to the churches of Pontus and Bithynia and Cappadocia and that whole eastern side, sorry, western side of Turkey. And here's what he wrote in his letter. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you exercising oversight, not under compulsion. Don't let, don't, you don't need a gun put to your head to do this. Do it willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain but eagerly. And here it is, not, dominor, not domineering over those in your charge. That's the Nicolaitan error right there. Peter felt the need to address it. Be examples to the flock, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. 
Oh, yep. Yep, these Ephesians, they'd been warned, and they'd been warned more than once. They'd been warned by Paul on the beach. They'd been warned by Peter the Apostle. They'd also been warned now by John. That's three of the biggest names in all of the New Testament, writing into the same context about the same apparent complex of problems, and it was bringing the entire church down. Now, there's a school of thought, I won't impress you with my uh, ability to tell you who's who in the zoo and the scholarly community, but I'll just say there's a school of thought in the study of church history and in the development of theology. It's a discipline known as historical theology. There's a school of thought that teaches that over time, things ossify, they slow down, they crystallize, and they no longer are the way that they were. Most of those people will tell you it takes a century or more for that to happen, but with all due respect to those people, I don't believe it because I've watched it with my own eyes. I've seen it happen. I talked last night about seasons, and I talked about four cycles of season that went, happened in four years in this land. That was just four years. So that kind of crystallization, that kind of ossification, that kind of dying down, well, you know, it can happen in a generation. It can happen in a few years. It might even happen in a few months. And when that kind of chilling effect lays hold, then the brightly burning flame of the Holy Spirit slowly but inexorably dies down to embers. And after a while, even the embers seem to grow cold. So whether you like to call a move of the Spirit a revival or an outpouring or an awakening, I don't care, put the language on it you like, I have my own language, have a teaching back there on that too, shameless plug. But, but never mind that. Call it what you want to call it. Here's what I know. A move of the Spirit can be quenched in many different ways. We easily think of sin in the camp. Everybody's heard about Achan and his golden wedge. and you know Everybody knows about that one. Everybody knows about Paul's writing to the church at Corinth about the sin of the one brother and so on. Yeah, we, have, we can have sin in the camp we can have theological error too, and that's the one everybody's really worried about all the time. Boy, don't want any theological error getting in there, and we don't want theological error. But in so doing, we often miss what it looks like when the flames of the Spirit die down because leaders draw back, because the people of God, therefore, draw back. I loved what we did up here this morning because it was exactly 180 degrees out of phase with that. We were calling something forth that would hopefully keep it going into the next generation. But what does it look like when, when leaders start to shrink back and therefore a church shrinks back and maybe a movement shrinks back or a region shrinks back? What does that look like? How would you even know it was going on? Well, number one, rules-based behavior becomes the norm instead of the freedom brought by the Holy Spirit. Spiritual advancement comes to be seen in terms of appropriate behavior, socialization, you know, getting cleaned up. And with it comes an underlying theme of trying hard to be good. Just try harder. Now, 
I agree that we need to live righteous lives, and I agree that we cooperate with the Spirit, but I'm talking about that thing that kind of tells people, well, you know, you just need to stop doing that, and there's no real assistance rendered, and there's never an expectation that the Spirit of God might actually come into play and do something in the lives of the people such that they are freed of whatever it is that they've been in, and therefore they're now living the life of the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit. It's a very different approach between legalism and Spirit-led living. And so, in that first step of rules-based behavior, rather than yielding to the Spirit, to find the power of God, to find holiness for the display of His splendor in the lives of the people of God, as we were touching on last night, instead, people start to check boxes. And we see this in Jesus' day, don't we, when we think about His several encounters with religious leaders. For example, a woman is healed on the Sabbath day. The leader of the congregation says to her, come back on one of the other days of the week. Decently in order is far more important than your being relieved of your suffering. House rules are in play here. Now that's not exactly a direct quote of the scripture, but it certainly captures the sentiment of that synagogue ruler. Hungry men are walking in a grain field on a Sabbath day, and as they do, they grab out a few kernels of wheat and they rub them between their hands... I guess they didn't have gluten intolerance then. They let the, the hulls fall to the ground and they throw the kernels in their mouth, unroasted wheat, and they munch on it. And so suddenly the Sabbath police show up and condemn them for doing work. Never mind that they were hungry and never mind that once upon a time King David had done far worse. A man with a withered arm stretches it out because Jesus says, stretch out your hand. And when he does... He's instantly healed, and in consequence for that, the leaders hatch a plot against him because he violated the Sabbath. Too bad it broke the rules of decency and in order. A prophet eats with tax collectors, drunks, and loose-living people and is himself called a sinner. After all, a man is known by the company he keeps. These are the ways that legalism starts to appear. Second, though, inflexibility about those same rules takes over, and we see it most clearly in Galatia, which, coincidentally, is not more than about 200 kilometers from Ephesus. Regional influence of something that's swirling through the churches and is causing a problem. And so... Paul writes and he says, when Peter came to Antioch, he's writing to the church of Galatia, but he's talking about something that had happened in modern day northern Israel, Lebanon, somewhere in that zone. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Before certain men came from Jerusalem that were associated with James, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles, but man, when they came, he drew back and he told them they had to live like Jews. And so I confronted him and I said, you're a Jew, you don't live like a Jew, and yet you require Gentiles to live like Jews. What's up with that? That's a modern paraphrase of the book of Galatians. So by Peter joining the party of people who had become legalistic, who had set down all of this rules-based behavior, oh, it seemed to be rooted in Scripture. It seemed to have a good foundation because after all, James, the leader of the Jerusalem community, the half-brother of Jesus, by the way, he seemed to be going along with it, and yet Paul had to challenge him. He had to rethink things. 
And so Paul goes on, he says to the Galatians, listen Galatians, let me ask you a couple questions here. Did you receive the Spirit because you obeyed works of the law or because you believed what you heard? Clear answer, because you believed what you heard. He says, are you so foolish? You began with the Spirit and now you're trying to perfect everything in the flesh by following rules. Clear answer, yep, they'd been deceived all right, and that's exactly what they were trying to do. Why else would Paul be writing a letter like this? Third question, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Well, clear answer, no, it wasn't in vain, but that's only true to the extent you continue on with the Spirit. Otherwise, you would have gone through all that hardship and difficulty for nothing. Fourth question, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and who continues to work miracles among you to this very day? By the way, that's an interesting little observation for those who are thinking about cessationism and whether God should continue being about all of this. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and who works miracles among you do so because of works of the law or because you hear with faith? Clear answer, because you receive the word with faith. And so rules-based behavior becomes crystallized. And then the third step, spiritual blindness takes over. Peter was so blind to what he was doing that Paul had to confront him publicly. That's not the way to win friends and influence people. But Paul apparently either didn't care about that or he felt that the need was so great there was no other way to address it. But Paul stands Peter down in Galatia because he, the Pentecost power preacher, if you want to call him that, Peter the Pentecost power preacher, the pogoing Pentecost power preacher, <laughs> he had succumbed to this unknowingly. He didn't realize he'd fallen into it. And so Paul said to him in front of them all, you're a Jew, you live like a Gentile, now you're making Gentiles live like Jews. And this exact progression... This is exactly why John was directed by Jesus Christ himself to write to the church at Ephesus because in losing their first love, in casting it aside, they had slid all the way down the hill to the bottom of a slippery slope. Now all of that should lead us to ask a very important question. How do we prevent this? How do we stop the very people of God and the leaders of God from drawing back and no longer putting their hand of blessing to what the Spirit clearly had done and still wanted to do. How do we do that? Well, Jesus gives the diagnosis in this little letter. It's only this big, but he gives us the answer. Now, some of you are old enough that I can look at you and know that you've probably seen a spaghetti western or two. And so, maybe this will mean something to you. <laughs> the good, the bad, and the ugly. Here's the good. Jesus gives them five attaboys. Revelation 2, verses 2 and 3. Five attaboys. Five things you're doing right. Number one, you've worked diligently. Your hand is to the plow. You're still doing it. Number two, they had patiently endured difficulty. This church had endured persecution. This church had had opposition from authorities, from commercial interests in their city. But they'd endured it and gone on. Number three, they'd resisted evil. 
They had generally, we might say, you know, abstained from all of the usual suspects in the sin camp that might have derailed them. Number four, they had tested those who claimed to be apostles but ultimately failed to make the grade. By the way, a lot of people want to say there were only 12 apostles, plus Paul, which no one ever really knows what to put him into the 12 because Matthias was a mispick or whether he was the 13th and it was just nobody knows. But here's what we know. If there were no uh, sense in the first century church of an ongoing apostolate, and by the way, when John's writing this, he's the only one left alive. The others have been killed, all of them. So why would you need to test apostles? If there's, only, if there's only those guys, the only one living is John. So the reason they needed to test these apostles who claimed to be apostles who had come through is there is some concept in first century Christianity of an ongoing apostolate. Just saying, it's not really on theme for the message, but we're there, so just kind of throw that one out as a tidbit. But Jesus says, I commend you because you tested those who claimed to be apostles but ultimately failed to make the grade. You, you've, been, you've maintained the standards that were laid down of what are the true signs and marks of an apostle. And just because somebody showed up with a business card saying, I'm an apostle, you didn't just buy it. And fifth thing, they had not given up. They were still going on. All good leaders, including the Lord, always begin correction with, Here's what you're doing right so that people don't have the sense that nothing they're doing is right. And normally we praise publicly and rebuke privately. Well, unfortunately, these guys had flubbed it up so bad on a public stage and the whole Eastern Mediterranean knew about it. So now that we've done the good, here comes the bad. The bad is this one, one major failing, verse 4. They had abandoned, not merely lost their first love. And we might even say Jesus was a little bit put out by it because he was supposed to be the first love. And the word here, as I've already said, suggests that they'd kind of flung it aside. And this was the fruit of cynicism in their ranks. No more of that for us. We've got to get things under control decently in order. That's the only way for us. Yeah, yeah, we know about what happened back then in the day, but this is a different time now, and we run church differently. And besides, no one's seen anything like that for a generation. That's the bad, but oh, here comes the ugly. I have this against you. You tolerate the Nicolaitans. Now, I already said they hated the teaching. Jesus mentions that, but their influence was allowed to persist. It's one thing not to like Nicolaitans. It's another thing to let the teaching kind of settle and waft through and have its poisonous and corrosive effect. And it was a mark on the church, and it was holding them back. And so Jesus says, here's the solution to your problem, Ephesus. Remember and repent, verse 5. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the deeds you did at first. Now, some of those people sitting in that church on that morning, I've already told you, they'd been converted by none other than Paul himself. They would have been aged by this point, but they would have remembered that. Some of them would have been under the ministry of Timothy, Paul's understudy. Others of them would have been under whoever this third generation pastor would have been. And they could remember the glory days. They could remember the days of extraordinary miracles. They could remember the great days of outpouring that had shaken Asia. And while some of them may have been third generation, believers who heard only the stories, nevertheless, 
what they were all being summoned to was their birthright. What they were all being called back into was their inheritance. What they were all being called to live in was what they had been born into as a congregation because it is, after all, the communion of the saints. And so those who were alive in that congregation still were linked to those who had been there in the day. And this remembering that they were being summoned to was not merely wistful thinking. It was not that, why are the former days better than these? In fact, the Bible says in the Old Testament that to ask that exact question does not come from, from wisdom. This was not grousing about why then was better or why you know this new pastor wasn't like Timothy or Paul himself. This was a remembering that brought about repentance, a change of mind, a fixed determination to do what was right. This was a remembrance and a repentance that was designed to provoke a return to the works done at first. Now, when we hear the word works, it confuses us. Because if you've been in any branch of Protestant Christianity, you've probably heard the old saw about, you know, faith and works. And are we saved by faith or are we saved by works? And, you know, people, people get all tangled up with that. And we often think of religious works that we may be engaged with, you know, ending trafficking, feeding the poor, handing out clothing. I mean, you guys have a very active mercy ministry in this church. And, there are other things that people may get involved with. They might oppose abortion, and all of these are good, but I would submit to you, these are, in fact, the very works Jesus commended them for continuing. He said, I know your works, and you are still doing them. So Jesus is giving them an attaboy that they're still carrying on all of that. So if that's the case then what is he calling them back to when he says, do the works that you did at the first? Well, the Greek word here is the word erga. You don't need to know that, but it's useful to hear it anyway. And that same word is the, is the word that the same writer John in the Gospel of John uses over and over again to refer to the works of Jesus, the erga of Jesus. These are the supernatural manifestations. The first work that he did was changing water into wine. The first, you know, he did a work when he raised Lazarus from the dead. John demarcates these things in that way. And I think what is happening here is this Ephesian church is being summoned to return to the supernatural works that have been laid into the bedrock foundation of the church in Ephesus because it had declined over a generation to this formalism, to this rules-based behavior, and now the life of the Spirit wasn't, in fact, flowing through the congregation the way it was supposed to be because they had lost their first love. There's the diagnosis. And the thing about Ephesus is it says in Acts 19.11 that God did extraordinary miracles in Ephesus. Now, I don't have time to develop this concept completely because we're just about at the finish here, but there are layers in the Bible or levels of outpouring and awakening, and I see at least four of them. Ephesus at least hit level three and then went over the top into level four. And that's why it's so important that Luke says, Acts 19.11, that God did extraordinary miracles through the hands of Paul in Ephesus. Here was what was distinctive about Ephesus. Unlike every other church in the New Testament era, Ephesus as a congregation stepped across a line into the greater works ministry of Jesus. 
That's why it says that God did extraordinary works there. And it wasn't just Paul that was doing them. If I were to do that message, you would see very clearly the whole of the body was energized into this, and this is why Nicolaitanism was such a poison, because it sucked that right out of the congregation. So these were the greater works that Luke calls extraordinary miracles that Jesus had promised in John 14, 12, when he said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and even greater works than these will he do, because I go to the Father. The preeminence of Ephesus then, and it's why I think they are the first church to get a letter from Jesus. You know, nobody wants to get the nasty gram from the boss, but that's what's happening here. Because they've been the greatest, they get the first rebuke. The preeminence of Ephesus, that it was one of the churches that had stepped across that line, and now Jesus was calling them to return to the place of visitation, to the place of abiding, to the place of passion, lest they lose their place of preeminence, which would have been embodied by prophetically a golden lampstand being removed. Nobody wants that one. Some churches commit the Ephesian error and they never recover. Some movements, some regions fall under error. The burned over district in northern New York State to this day is one of the most gospel hardened areas in the United States. It's been 160 years since Finney preached his crusades there, and it, was, it is still to this day one of the most gospel-resistant regions in the entire nation. But Jesus offered a second chance, and that's a promise and a summons. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Hear, listen, heed act upon what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, we've been talking this weekend about the display of His splendor. I would suggest to you that one of the ways God displays His splendor is through totally over-the-top, outrageous and lavish works of God that only God can do. That shows His splendor as well. When I was talking to, was it last night or the worship leader? I can't remember, but I talked about five dimensions of the holiness of God. And one of them that I mentioned was the works. This is why it's so important that Jesus wrote this letter to the Ephesian church. Now, I began by drawing parallels between the words of Jesus to the churches and what happens in marriage. And here's the great promise. First love can be recovered. If this is true in marriage, if a stale marriage can find its way back to romance, then it is also true in the things of the Spirit. And I believe that the Lord wants to summon not just this church, and this isn't really brought to you as a rebuke as much as it is as something to think about and consider, but I believe the Lord wants to summon the church back into these greater works, kinds of ministries, and in that the display of His splendor will become manifest. Now we talked about in that Isaiah passage, how the nations would come to the people of God in wonder and at times perplexed at what was going on. Well, there's few ways that are better at doing that than to have a few truly extraordinary miracles start to happen that no one can explain, no man can take credit for, and then everyone says God is truly among them. So we want to display His splendor. We want to be the people who exhibit his splendor, then we have to return to the works that we did at the first. And that means we've got to have our hearts right. I guess in the end, it always seems like it comes back to the heart, doesn't it? 
there are actions, motions, follow through, life issues that, that come with that. I don't want to make it sound like, yeah, just, you know, fall in love with Jesus and it's all good. But that's where it begins. And so I think the Lord is issuing a summons. And if you would like to be one who displays his splendor, and maybe you realize, hmm, haven't been doing all that well, then probably the thing to do is take the next step back and check your heart. And if you need to have your heart touched again by the Lord, come forward this morning and get some prayer. We've got a prayer team that's ready to help you with that. Amen? Two minutes over, Kirk. Sorry about that. <laughs> I just noticed your shirt. Corey is sitting here with a shirt on that says, Religion Sets Rules. Hmm, isn't that interesting? Totally random, but didn't expect that one. All right. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name for this church called Pine Rivers Vineyard. And we thank you for the passion that, that this people has for you. Father, we want to heed what the Spirit says to the churches. And so, Lord, rekindle in our hearts first love. Let us just go berserk for Jesus and for the works of God and for propagating the kingdom. All of it, Lord. We want all of it. Thank you that John had a visitation on a desert island 1,900 years ago. And that today we can heed the words that were delivered during that visitation. In Jesus' name, amen.